As a boy, I remember watching Wide World of Sports on ABC on Saturday afternoon. And my favorite was the cliff diving championships from Acapulco, Mexico. Brave men would leap headfirst off a ledge 136 feet above a slender inlet of ocean. The water depth in the water below was anywhere from 6 feet to 16 feet, depending on the waves, and so timing was crucial. Even after a diver hit the water, no one took a breath, not until he surfaced and waved to the crowd. That's when everyone knew he was okay, that he had survived. But the spectators at the cliff diving championships, they always looked because they expected the diver to still be alive. Not so with the disciples. When Jesus dove into the icy waters of death, they all assumed that he would never rise. They saw the torture, the blood, his last breath. They held his lifeless body in their arms. No one expected him to surface. Roman soldiers, they guarded the tomb, not because they anticipated a spark of life from Jesus. They were on duty to prevent a conspirator from stealing the corpse. You know, the most ominous characteristic of death is that it's irreversible. You lose a loved one and it doesn't really hit you until you get to that first Christmas afterwards or maybe to the Easter get-together that he or she is all of a sudden missing. That's when you realize that that person who played such a vital part in your life and in your family, they'll never be around again. Their departure is permanent. It's irreversible. And this is what the disciples assumed about their master. When the women came to the garden tomb to finish spicing up the corpse, no one had any inkling of expectation that they would ever see Jesus alive again. That's when John chapter 20 verse 1 tells us, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Matthew says they came as the day began to dawn. Luke reports it was very early in the morning. The apparent differences are easily explained. They probably left the upper room somewhere pre-dawn before the sun began to come up, but then the sun rose as they made their journey to the garden tomb. But I like to start the story of the resurrection with John chapter 20 verse 1 because it was dark in more ways than one. Even though Jesus had taught His disciples that He'd been crucified and would rise again the third day, the possibility of a literal resurrection had never crossed their minds. They had been overcome by the irreversibility of death. Author Kent Hughes, he writes this of the disciples. He calls them Saturday's children. He says that Saturday's kids are the defeated. They feel cheated and trapped and stuck. Their dreams have died. Their optimism is dim. Disappointment dominates. Life is not what they'd hoped. Its futility seems irreversible. But one event transformed Saturday's children into Sunday's children. For with the resurrection of Jesus, sadness and evil and disappointment and defeat became reversible. Hope and joy and faith became the new realities. A triumphant approach to life was born. 
In the future, these disciples, they'll be persecuted. They'll even be plundered. But nothing will get them down. Why? Because they will recall the empty tomb and the power of Jesus. And they will trust in His ability to transform sorrow into gladness. They became Sunday's children. And here's my question for you this morning. Are you Saturday's child? Or are you one of Sunday's children? Well, was it dark? Had the day began to dawn? How early was it? You find other examples of ambiguity in the gospel record of the resurrection. Was it one angel or was it two? Who exactly made up the band of women who came to the tomb? You see, I bring this all up because it's obvious the four gospel writers didn't all get together to make sure they had their story straight. If the resurrection had been a hoax, they would have had a powwow ahead of time to work out the details. Obviously, they didn't. They were too surprised, too stunned by the event. Now don't misunderstand, none of the details mentioned in the Gospels contradict each other. All four Gospels can be reconciled. But I don't think coordinating details was their primary concern. The writers were too overwhelmed by the elephant in the room. They were trying to get their heads around a miracle of unmatched proportion. For the first time in history... A man demonstrated that he had the power to reverse his own death. What they had always assumed was irreversible had now been reversed. Mark tells us that as the women walked to the tomb, they discussed how they were going to remove the stone. A huge stone, probably two ton, had sealed the tomb shut. But their concern was needless fretting. In fact, since Jesus is alive, a lot of our concerns are needless fretting, aren't they? Matthew 28 verse 2 tells us what happened as the ladies approached. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. I'll bet millions of angels were on hand at the resurrection. Only two were made visible. On my first trip to Israel, I visited a place called the King's Tomb. It's an out-of-the-way site. It's not on most tour itineraries. I went there because it features a tomb with an example of how a stone was rolled in front of the grave, in front of the opening of the grave. A channel is cut into the rock right in front of the mouth of the grave. And a stone is placed at the top of the gutter. A wedge is then driven underneath the rock to hold it. When it's time to roll the stone, you kick out the wedge, and then the gravity pulls the stone down into its place. This is how it rolled at the garden tomb. When Mark writes, the stone had been rolled away, the word he uses means to roll up a slope, or an incline. The angel-induced earthquake didn't just push the stone backward, it pushed it upward. John states the stone had been taken away. He uses the Greek word arrow, which means to pick up and carry. This stone caught air. A 4,000-pound rock blew off the mouth of the grave when Jesus rose from the dead. This past February in downtown Atlanta, You might have read the story. An underground fire blew a half dozen manhole covers several feet into the air. Thankfully, no one was injured. 
It takes quite a force to lift 300 pounds of cast iron. But that was nothing compared to the resurrection power of Jesus. It blasted that stone right off the grave. And understand, the reason wasn't to let Jesus out. We'll see later that the resurrected body of Jesus had supernatural capacities. He could walk through stone walls. He could travel distances instantaneously. Apparently, a heavenly, immortal body isn't bound by mortal laws. Oh no, the stone was moved not to let Jesus out. It was to let us in so that the world could see that he was risen. Well, apparently, the Roman garrison guarding the tomb had front row seats for the miracle Matthew 28 verse 4 tells us the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I mean, these Romans, they were special ops. They were battle-tested troops. And yet they quivered in fear before the angel. They played dead at first. Then they ran like rabbits. Matthew tells us that they were afraid of Pilate. That his orders were to guard the tomb. That's why they went to the chief priests. The Jews bribed them and promised to smooth things over with Pilate. If the soldiers told everyone that the disciples had come that night and had stolen the body while they slept. Ironically, to save their own skin, the soldiers agreed to lie, to tell the lie that they were sent to prevent. But the Romans weren't the only people who ran from the tomb. John tells us that Mary Magdalene left the other women who came to prepare the body of Jesus. She raced back to the upper room to fetch Peter and John. At this point, all that Mary knew was that the tomb was empty. She didn't yet know what had happened. But the other women, they got informed. In Luke 24 verse 5, two angels appear in the tomb wearing shining garments. And one of them asks... Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And this is what's carved today in the door at Jerusalem's garden tomb. Those same words, he is not here, but is risen. You know, there are famous tombs all around the world. There's Hadrian's tomb in Rome. There's Lenin's tomb in Red Square. There's the Taj Mahal in India. There's Westminster Abbey in London. There's Pharaoh's tomb, the Pyramid of Giza there in Egypt. There's the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. But it's ironic that the world's most famous tomb, the garden tomb in Israel, is empty. Jesus is risen. You can dance on Muhammad's remains, or on Buddha's body, or on Confucius' corpse, but not Jesus. His body is risen I've been inside the tomb where Jesus was buried and he's no longer there. He's risen. The world's most famous tomb is an empty tomb. But it's interesting, that empty tomb isn't all that you notice when you go to the garden tomb in Jerusalem. If you look at the top of the wall all around the compound, you'll notice barbed wire surrounding the area. There's sharp glass shards embedded in the top of the wall. It's a sign of the tension and the conflict that exists just outside the gates. Surely folks who live near the tomb, they're familiar with the facts of the resurrection. They know that Christ is risen. They live next door to the evidence. But the perpetual violence and the turmoil is a sign that they've yet to experience the risen Lord. And I wonder how many people here today have the same experience 
Yes, you know, you believe intellectually that Jesus has risen. But have you met him personally? Do you know his presence and his power in your life? Have you received his love and forgiveness? Notice again the question the angel asked the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, who looks in a graveyard for a man who's alive? Why are you treating a living, breathing human being as if he were dead? And yet Christians and churches are, churches are guilty of this crime every single Sunday. They'll come together and they'll read his words and they'll apply his lessons. They'll recall his past accomplishments and learn from his example. They'll even sing songs about him. But why stop there? Why not press further? Why not seek to know him for yourself? Don't just sing songs about him. Express your heart to him. Make prayer a dialogue, not just a monologue. Don't just work for the Lord. Seek to work with him. Church isn't a eulogy for a dead man. It should be an encounter with the living Lord who is alive and well. Well, after speaking to the women, Mark tells us that the angel instructed them to return to the rest of the disciples and to let them know that Jesus had risen. And I love Mark's account where the angel says to the ladies, but go tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. And Peter. Hey, Jesus plans to reach out especially to Peter and reassure him of his forgiveness. Peter was the one who failed, who denied the Lord three times. The love of Jesus never fails, even when we do. And Jesus had Peter in mind. The Lord's pardon is always available if we're humble and if we're willing to change. Well, here's a possible play-by-play -play of how the day's events unfolded. Early in the morning, Jesus is resurrected. An angel and an earthquake remove the stone. Women arrive early at the tomb and they find it empty. The Romans flee while Mary Magdalene races off to tell Peter and John. The other women, they encounter the two angels who inform them that Jesus has risen. They're told to tell the other disciples and Peter. As the ladies exit the garden, Matthew 28 tells us that Jesus appeared to them. Peter and John then arrive at the tomb, along with Mary Magdalene. John 20 verse 4 says, They both ran together, and the other disciple, being John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Notice that John, in writing his gospel, seems to have to mention that he outran Peter to the tomb. <laughs> I guess even at the most holy moments, boys will be boys. But I think it shows how much they wanted to believe. Imagine the return conversation that morning. Could it be? After all that's happened, could it be? Peter had to wonder, how will he ever forgive me after what I've done, after the way I failed? And just as Peter leaves the garden, Jesus appeared to him personally. What a moment that must have been. I guarantee a tear or two was shed by both men. Mary, though, had stayed behind. At this point, she doesn't know about the resurrection. John 20, verse 11 tells us, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The Greek word literally means wailing. 
mean, she's not just whimpering. She's not just sniveling. She's crying profusely. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. I love Mary's preoccupation with Jesus. I mean, she's talking to celestial beings. You don't get to talk to angels every, <laughs> very often. She's talking to angels, no less. But she seems to hardly notice the angels. She's in all-out pursuit of Jesus, the King of angels. Verse 14 tells us, And now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Why didn't she know? We're not told. It could have been power of suggestion. Mary concluded that death was irreversible. She just never expected to see Jesus and so she didn't recognize him. Here, though, is what I think is more likely the explanation. Recall his scars. We'll see in a moment that even Jesus' resurrected body still bore those marks of crucifixion. He'll hold out his scars to Thomas. He'll show his scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side. I've heard it said, the only man-made things we'll find in heaven will be the scars on our Lord Jesus. Jesus may have also bore the scars in his face where they plucked out his beard. Or in his brow where they screwed down that crowning thorns, the thorn of crowns. I believe Jesus was severely disfigured by the brutal beating he endured. You know, you and I, we might be in for a shock when we get to heaven. And when we see Jesus and look into his face and see those scars. Initially, we'll weep when we finally see for ourselves the damage our sin has caused. But then our tears will turn to joy. We'll rejoice in those scars. They will forever be a testimony to His mercy and grace toward us. Apparently, after His resurrection, Jesus' appearance was altered somehow. This is why both Mary and the other disciples didn't always recognize Jesus at first glance. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing Him to be the gardener, said to Him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. At first, Mary didn't recognize that the gardener was Jesus. But when he spoke her name, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And I am sure it was the way that Jesus spoke her name. When Mary's mother addressed her, it was to scold her. Mary? When the men in her life spoke her name, hey, Mary, baby. It was because they were trying to use her, get something from her. When her neighbors whispered, did you hear about that Mary? They were judging. But when Jesus spoke Mary, his voice exuded peace and acceptance and love. When Jesus said Mary, she knew that she was loved. Hey, listen. Jesus is speaking your name this morning. When she knew it was Jesus, Mary fell on her face and she grabbed his feet. She loved him so much. Hey, before she met Jesus, she'd been a prostitute. She'd been used and abused. 
The Gospels say that Mary was formerly a sleepover for seven demons. Jesus turned her whole world right side up. He freed her and forgave her. Jesus the carpenter from Nazareth had built for Mary an entirely new life. And this is why Mary clung to Jesus with all her might. She had seen him crucified. Now she would never let go of him again. She wanted Jesus to stay with her forever. But Jesus speaks cryptic words to her in verse 17. He says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now I used to think that his concern was the body she was squeezing. As if mortals can't touch glorified flesh. But in Matthew chapter 28 verse 9, the other women, they hold on to Jesus' feet as they worship Him. And He doesn't seem to mind. Here, Jesus is reacting not to Mary's touch, but to the intention of her grip. She is holding on as if she will never let Him go. Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, but she doesn't want Him to go. She's going to need to develop a new kind of an attachment to Jesus. She is going to have to let go. She's going to have to develop a new relationship with Jesus, but no longer through flesh and blood, but through the person of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, Mary is a prototype for you and me and for all true disciples. Wouldn't we love to have the flesh and blood Jesus with us all the time? I certainly would. But instead, we've been called to walk in His Spirit. We've been called to develop a spiritual connection, a spiritual attachment with Jesus. You see, Sunday's children relate to Jesus spiritually by faith. In Mary, the Holy Spirit came to live where demons had dwelled. Rather than tighten her grip, she now needs to strengthen her faith. And the same is true for you and me. Luke 24 verse 11 provides us the skeptical reaction of the other disciples when the women arrive with the news of Jesus' resurrection. Their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. At first it wasn't just Thomas, it was all 11 disciples that were doubters. Jesus' own flesh and blood siblings also had their doubts. In John chapter 7 verse 5, we're told that not even Jesus' miracles had convinced his own family that he was divine. It's hard for proud siblings to admit that their brother might be better. But it was the resurrection that turned the tide. Afterward, Mary's boys all became believers. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 tells us that the risen Christ made a special appearance to his younger brother James. And as a result, James became a leader in the early church. Luke records another of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. It occurred on the road to Emmaus. Two of Saturday's children are headed home as a stranger approaches them and joins their conversation. They don't know it's Jesus at first. Their eyes are closed. These two men were former followers. Now they're dejected. In Luke 24 verse 21, one of the guys states, But we were hoping... That it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Notice those words. So sad. We were hoping. Apparently their hope had died. They'd staked their future on Jesus. And He had given up without even a fight. They even mentioned the ladies' reports from the tomb. And they dismissed them as the wishful thinking of emotional women. 
the flame of their faith had been snuffed out. For a time, they had longed for life on a higher plane. But their brief flirtation with heaven had been shattered by the cruelty of a cross. They're heading home now hopeless. And let me suggest the road to Emmaus not only runs seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, but at some point the road to Emmaus cuts through the heart of every single person. Have you ever felt forsaken? Have you ever been disappointed, let down, even by God? You thought He loved you, but now after all that's happened, you're not so sure. The road to Emmaus is a lonely road. But you need to know, Jesus had joined these two forlorn disciples. They just didn't know it. In their sadness, He was with them. He was right beside them. And the same is true for you and me. Well, as they walked, Jesus quoted Scripture and He showed them in the Old Testament where God had predicted all that had happened. He was priming their faith with His Word. And then when Jesus broke the bread and gave it to them, the Bible says their eyes were open and they recognized it was Jesus. Just as soon as they realized it, though, He was gone. Presto, He dematerialized into thin air. Again, He's forcing them to form a spiritual connection with Him, not so much with flesh and blood. They were so excited, though, they hightailed it back to let the other disciples know that they had seen the risen Christ. Two more of Saturday's kids are now Sunday's children. Imagine back in Jerusalem, these two men, they're in the upper room. They're rehearsing the story with the disciples. They're behind locked doors. They're talking now about the road trip with these confused disciples. Luke 24, verse 36 tells us, Now as they said these things, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. Without a knock on the door, Jesus just appears. He slips past siding and sheetrock. The living Lord crashes a powder's party with hope. Jesus holds out His hands and His feet. He invites them to squelch all doubt. He says, Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And it's amazing how Luke describes their reaction. Verse 40. He says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy. I'm not sure I know what Luke means by that statement. Joy was the reason for their doubt? Maybe it was as if they felt this was all just too good to be true. I mean, they were so giddy about seeing him alive. That the reality of it didn't just didn't register for some reason. That's when Jesus, though, tries to bring these disciples back to earth. He asks if they have any food. And they give him a broiled fish and a honeycomb. And he eats a piece of broiled fish and sucks on a honeycomb. Ghosts don't eat fish and honey. Jesus proves that his resurrection is real, it's actual. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Man, astonished, stunned, awed, reeling from the irreversible getting reversed. This is how you would describe the disciples on that first Easter evening. In a few short hours, they had climbed from the ash heap of doubt to the mountaintop of belief. You see, just as soon as Jesus' lungs reinflated, 
Just as soon as his heart kick-started and the amino acids were rekindled, as soon as the resurrection occurred, the clock began to tick. Now that the redemption had been paid, Jesus was to ascend to his Father. He has only 40 days to prepare his disciples for his departure. And these men, they've got a lot to reassess. Author Philip Yancey, he calls the ascension of Jesus the most troublesome of all the Christian doctrines. That Jesus would leave after just six weeks from His resurrection. What a risk He took. Jesus took the kingdom of God that He had worked so hard to plant, the kingdom that He had died to redeem, and He turned it over to the folks who denied Him three days earlier. I mean, how could He leave so soon? The answer is that He didn't. At least not completely. Jesus continued what he started through the Holy Spirit. Here's how he ends that initial appearance to his disciples in the upper room. John 20 verse 22 tells us, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The joy and the hope and the love and the power that came with the resurrection will be sustained through the Holy Spirit. Did you know this is how you can take part in the resurrection of Jesus? By praying, by asking, Lord, breathe on me the power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said the night before he was crucified, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. If you haven't received the power of the Holy Spirit, you're missing out on the key part of the Christian life. The success of the church in ages to come will hinge on our ability to relate to Jesus spiritually, to have this spiritual connection, to learn to walk by faith. Like Jesus said to Mary, rather than strengthen your grip, all His disciples need to strengthen their faith. For some reason, one of the disciples had been missing at Jesus' earlier visit. It was the show-me disciple. His name was Thomas. I guess he'd gone out for pizza when Jesus popped in. Imagine Thomas walking back in with a stack full of pizza boxes and somebody says, guess who you missed? What a letdown. Hey, which by the way, that's why you should come to church. Not just on Easter Sunday, but all year long. You know why? Because when God's people gather together, the risen Christ shows up. If you don't show up, look who you're missing. When Thomas was told that Jesus was alive, his skepticism turned stubborn. He says, unless I see in his hands the print of nails and put my finger into the print of nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It was eight days later, Jesus silences Thomas's doubts. He surprises the gang again with an unexpected entry. And Jesus invites the doubter to touch his scars. Thomas responds with one of the most powerful statements of faith in Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. He bows before the risen King. And then Jesus sets the stage for believers yet to come. For you and I. For us, 2,000 years later, he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. 
Thomas and Peter and Mary Magdalene and James and the women and the men on the road and the disciples and the 500 people who Paul says saw Jesus at one time. All these people saw tangibly these things. They saw infallible, undeniable proofs in tangible ways that Jesus had risen. And these things were needed for history's sake. We too think that we need these things. We would like to touch His scars. We think that faith would be easier if we could see with our eyes, if we could touch with our hands. But would it be easier? Is tangible proof the best way to grow a faith? I don't think so. For these disciples, having seen, they believe. But how often in life do we not see? How often in life does life become fuzzy and foggy? How often do doubts set in? How often is our vision obscured? Often, I would say. I would say more often than not. That's why we need a faith that can believe and that can trust even when we don't see. This is why the blessed are those who form this spiritual connection with Jesus, who learn to walk by faith, not by sight. This is what the risen Christ wanted to instill in His followers. He wants followers who can believe with their eyes closed. John 20 verse 30 is probably the most frustrating verse in all the Bible. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. Come on, John. Couldn't you have spared a couple more pages? And we'd like to know what signs. I'm sure Jesus kept surprising them, popping in and out. But it didn't take long for Peter to grow weary from all this suspense. So what does a former fisherman do when he needs a little time to rest and relax? Well, Peter and his six pals, they decide to go fishing. There is one other possibility. Peter knows that Jesus has forgiven him. But what about ministry? That's another issue. How can God use him after his colossal failure? Peter may have been retiring from ministry. He figured he was better suited to be a professional fisherman rather than an apostle. He had tired of fishing for men. Maybe it was time to return to fish. And John 21 tells us this story that Peter and his crew, they were fishing there on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus appeared on the beach. At a distance, no one recognized him until he called out, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Instantly, they caught a boatload. They'd fished all night and caught nothing. Now at the Lord's discretion, they toss in their nets and there's a bounty. And there's a lesson for us as well. If we want to harvest, don't trust in our own wisdom Follow the Lord's direction. This was the repeat of an earlier miracle on the same shore. And it was John who put it all together. He concludes, it's the Lord. The living Lord Jesus was teaching His disciples that He could invade their world anytime, any place. You see, Jesus comes to us not just at church on Sunday, but by the lake, in the hood, at the park, on the job. One author writes, In many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. It means he's loose out there somewhere. Like the disciples, I never know where Jesus will turn up, how he'll speak to me, what he might ask of me. Another man puts it, We can never nail Jesus down 
Not even if the nails we use are real and the thing we nail him to is a cross. Jesus is alive and he is on the move. Peter was so excited about it. The Bible says he put on his coat and jumped in the water. I don't know why you put your coat on before you jump in the water. He didn't even wait for the boat to land. He just jumped in the lake and started to swim. Man, you got to love Peter. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to get out of the boat. And on the shore after breakfast, Jesus beautifully reaffirms his calling on Peter's life. Peter had denied the Lord three times. Now three times he's renewed. Jesus asks him, Simon, do you love me more than these? These what? These fish? I mean, does he love fishing more than Jesus? If so, why did he return to his former life? Or maybe these men, Peter had boasted, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. But he had. Did he really love Jesus? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But here's where we miss, miss it in English. For the first two times that Jesus asked Peter, he uses the Greek word agape. He says, do you love me with agape love, with God's love, with unselfish, sacrificial love? But Peter doesn't reply with the same word. Instead of agape, he uses phileo or brotherly love. Love, but of a lesser sort. Peter isn't as quick of making boasts. He's grown humble. He's learning to walk by faith, not by sight. He's learning to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, not his own power. Each time Peter says he loves Jesus, the Lord tells him to prove it by tending or feeding God's flock. Peter can fish for fortune or he can feed the flock of God. In a gentle way, the living Lord is restoring a fallen Peter. He's reinstalling him to useful service. And he's been doing the same with fallen believers ever since. Maybe you've had a ministry in the past. The Lord wants to restore you to useful service as well. Well, three of the four Gospels mention the ascension of Jesus to His Father in heaven. You know, from our perspective, the resurrection was the most exciting day in history. But I am sure that from Jesus' perspective, the ascension was the most exciting day in history. Like a soldier coming home from a tour on the battlefield. Like a fish taken off a hook and tossed back into the stream. Jesus was returning to His element. For 33 years, he had braved a hostile environment. And now he's headed home to receive his reward. When Jesus lifted off from the Mount of Olives and vanished into the clouds, it put an exclamation point on the gospel. It was obvious now that Jesus had accomplished his task and the Father had accepted his sacrifice. And now as he ascended, he sent out his disciples to continue their work. I love what Walter Wink writes. He says, killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head. The Jews who wanted to ground Jesus' message, they gave it wings through His disciples. They were the seeds through which His kingdom would sprout. And today, 2,000 years later, it's through you and I that the kingdom continues to grow. In Matthew 28, verse 19, just before His ascension, Jesus gave His disciples, both then and now, our marching orders. He commanded us, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them 
Did you know the reason the Easter lily is associated with the season is because its blossom is shaped like a trumpet? And in Bible times, trumpets made big announcements. Sunday's children are all about trumpeting the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. And it's the Spirit of God who empowers us. In Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus qualifies His commission to go. He says, before you go, you need to wait in Jerusalem. Why? Until I send the promise of my Father upon you until you are endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit is the breath that blows the trumpet. Jesus' final words were probably the last verse in Matthew. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a promise. Jesus will remain on earth in the hearts that believe. He's risen, He ascends, but He stays in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Augustine said, You have ascended before our eyes, and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts. Here is the genius of Christianity. The risen Christ still moves in the world today. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The risen Christ dwells within His followers in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus continues to work in and through those people who trust Him, who develop that spiritual connection with Him. Well, to sum it all up this morning, there are two ways that you can look at life. You can accept the cold, cruel world that crucified Jesus as the norm. You can view such things as sin and sorrow and sadness as irreversible. Or you can believe in resurrection power. You can see the risen Christ as the norm. You can see the triumph of Jesus as the first step to a new day and a new world and a new life. Hopelessness is now reversible. The resurrection of Jesus proves that through Him, what we thought was irreversible is now reversible. So why sit and pout over a world gone bad? Why not believe in the risen Christ and begin to help change that world? Make a spiritual connection with Jesus today. Open up your heart to His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Are you Saturday's child? Or are you Sunday's child?